The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Set you free. Hey there. Good afternoon. Good evening. I am Leslie Marshall, and I'm so glad to be talking to you today because we have added a whole new audience of listeners in addition to all of the other places that hear us. We are on a very special place. We are now officially, today is our live kickoff, uh, not podcast, live program, a live broadcast. And we are part now of the NRM Streamcast. We are so glad. We are so glad to welcome the NRM Streamcast and add it to our national listening family and international listening family, by the way. Uh, I want to tell you a bit about Streamcast. And uh, I also want to tell you a bit about the man who put this together, who helped me in Streamcast to be married, if you will. <laughs> uh, NRM Streamcast is the all-new inclusive network for streamcasting. Their new platform uh, broadcasting simultaneously to desktops, uh, mobile, mobile phones, smart TVs, uh, also uh, podcast, uh, live streaming on demand, basically. There's an app. It's unique and original content. You're not going to hear what you're hearing here anywhere else. It's everywhere. Like I said, on your smartphone, your tablet, your computer. But you want to know the best part? It is free. Not a dirty four-letter word. F-R-E-E, a good one. It's free. You can access what you want, when you want. Streamcast, right? Streaming, podcasting. How about streamcasting? That's what NRM has done here. The NRM Streamcast It's yours to enjoy. And we here at the Leslie Marshall Show are so psyched to be a part of it. Some of you uh, may know me. Some of you may not. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about me uh, in a moment. But uh, first, I want to tell you about Tom Athens, because Tom Athens is the man who helped uh, NRM Streamcast and the Leslie Marshall Show uh, get married, if you will, and start today in our live uh, portion of this Streamcast, which we hope you'll enjoy and continue to listen to. Tom actually was my boss years ago, the second time that I was syndicated. And uh, I'll tell you about the first time in a moment. But the second time I was syndicated, I went to one of those conventions. Talk radio and talk show hosts have conventions because we love to talk and drink and eat. (laughs) <laughs> and be able to write it off, right? So basically at this convention, I met Tom with another business associate. I don't need to name him, still friends with him. And uh, he, he and this uh, gentleman had talked about syndicating me at the time. I was doing a local radio show and I had been syndicated uh, years prior. Um, Tom had said to me that uh, he felt that I sounded like a female Ed Schultz. And some of you may say, Ed Schultz, I didn't like him, you know, or I loved him. Don't let that turn you off because I sound nothing like Ed. But his point was that I was able to paint a picture with words and able to have the information, have great guests, uh, handle the calls, and also inform you 
but in a way different. You're not going to hear everything coming out of my mouth that you hear from every single other person. That's one of the reasons you tune in, right, to to a stream, to a podcast, to a streamcast like we have here on NRM and here the Leslie Marshall Show, a part of it. You want something different. Uh, you don't want to hear the same old talking points uh, that some people put out there. So we're not, we give you a promise we're not going to do that and just give you the same old talking points. So anyway, Tom, uh, that other guy, uh, wanted to do it, but you know, he wasn't committing and Tom was committing. Tom was committing and he decided to, uh, help us and, uh, to be my boss and to launch the Leslie Marshall show in, syndic- in syndication for a second time. And I am proud to say we are now, I don't know, Mark, where, where are we? Let me see. That was what? 2007, right? 13 years ago or 2006, 14 years ago. Um, maybe even 15 years ago. Marky Mark, you will hear me talk to occasionally. He's our executive producer, Marky Mark from Albany. He has been with us since the beginning. Mark, say hi to all the NRM Streamcast listeners today. Hello. Thank you guys for joining us. Glad to have you as part of the family. Uh, yeah, Mark, how long has it been? 13, 14, 15 it's years been, since we started? It, Feb- it was actually uh, our, our, let me think, it's been 14 years. Yes, 14 years. You're right. 14 years. And the second syndication started with Tom Athens, right? We That's owe right. him for that. And we yep, need to exactly. thank him for that. And now we owe Tom again, and we need to thank him for bringing us on to the NRM Streamcast and making us an, a, a part of this family. And we're very, very stoked and uh, psyched to have uh, to participate with this. Uh, we love cutting edge stuff. NRM Streamcast is certainly cutting edge. And we love to be able to have people have choices as to not only how they get their content, but choosing what content they're receiving. Uh, we're all about choice. And uh, I'm glad I, Leslie Marshall, am part of it. So who am I? Who am I? Who, who Who's this broad you're listening to uh, right now on the NRM Streamcast? Um, I was, honestly, the youngest person ever syndicated in talk radio in 1992. I replaced Tom Snyder on the ABC Satellite Radio Network in New York. Uh, Tom did a TV show on CNBC. And uh, yes, I was 12. No, I'm just joking. Don't try and figure out the age. Never try and figure out a woman's age. Come on. Uh, and uh, before that, I've worked in uh, local markets um, all over the country, actually. I started my career in Miami, Florida. I'm originally from Boston, so we'll start there. I'm originally from Boston. Don't worry, I won't start. Well, I came out of the womb. Uh, I'm originally from Boston. I have an undergraduate degree from Northeastern University, attended Emerson College for my master's, and uh, left Boston, couldn't find a gig in radio, and had a nice man hire me in Miami, Florida. And I did news, and I did talk, and I say that because I know the difference between a journalist and a talk host. One reports the facts, and one opines about those facts. And I now do just the latter and have for the majority of my career. After Miami, I went to a city called Buffalo, New York, which made a big difference. And in Buffalo, Time Magazine wrote a little blurb about me because I was the first person to beat Rush Limbaugh a first liberal to beat Rush Limbaugh in local radio. I did it in a couple of books. When they say books, I'm talking about Arbitron and ratings. And uh, people were like, who is this chick, right? So it kind of put me, you might say, on the map a bit. After that, I worked in Houston, Texas. And uh, after Houston, that's when I was syndicated. After my first round of syndication, I ended up working locally in Chicago, Illinois, San Francisco, California, back to Chicago, also worked in Sacramento, California while I was in San Francisco, and then ended up in Los Angeles. And that's where I am now. I broadcast from Los Angeles, but I move all around the country. Speaking of move, in between all those full-time gigs, I had little part-time gigs filling in for people's vacation, paternity leave. I've lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
uh, Tampa, Florida, West Palm Beach, Florida, Orlando, Florida, Providence, Rhode Island. Let me see. Where else have I been? Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and uh, just uh, so I, I, I've lived in so many of the cities and certainly major cities, including New York, as I mentioned, uh, throughout my career. Uh, but I am broadcasting from a Los Angeles. And that is my radio and audio career. I've also done some writing. Uh, I wrote for years, about four or five years, for U.S. News and World Report. Then I wrote for the Huffington Post. And now I write for foxnews.com. Do not do not tune me out. Do not tune me out. I uh, garner between two and four million views uh, every week because, you know, People are interested in what, you know, I, a a liberal on Fox, have to say. And speaking of a liberal on Fox, I have been for over 11 years uh, one of, some would say the voice of reason, uh, on Fox News Channel as one of the Fox News contributor who provides analysis as a liberal progressive Democrat from a liberal progressive Democrat point of view. And that's what I write about, and that's uh, when I'm on TV. You've probably seen me if you ever tuned in, and if not, maybe you saw me on YouTube or, you know, if you subscribe to my YouTube channel or you just were Googling. Uh, For years, I was on uh, with Bill O'Reilly. Uh, you know, I've certainly been on the Sean Hannity's, the Tucker Carlson's, the Laura Ingram's, uh, but I'm a regular fixture on Special Report with Brett Baer. I'm also one of the uh, co-hosts of Outnumbered a few times a month during the day, and I do other programs on Fox, such as America's Newsroom, uh, The Daily Briefing with Dana Perino, Outnumbered Overtime with Harris Faulkner, uh, The America's Newsroom is with Ed Henry and Sandra Smith, and then uh, on top of that, I'm trying to think of everything on the Fox Business Channel. I do Kennedy's show, Kennedy Nation, and I also do Making Money with Charles Payne. And like I said, write uh, for them every week. And um, uh, I, I, you can also hear my article because I read it in a podcast form uh, for Fox. Trying to think, do I have it? Oh, yeah, Fox News at night every uh, Wednesday usually and you, uh, with Shannon Bream. And you also see me post debates. Uh, for the, you know, the primaries, the caucuses, Super Tuesday, the Democratic Convention, uh, the Republican Convention, and all of the debates leading up to the election. So I'm very excited to be coming on today, especially uh, because we, you know, are, are in one sense ages away and in another moments away from the November 2020 election. In addition to that, oh, I've won, you know, awards and I did a TEDx talk and I was very proud of that. Uh, we have um, over 750,000 views or something like that now. Everybody keeps telling me edging up toward 800,000 views. I'm, I'm proud of that. I did uh, my TEDx talk on how America views Islam, and I did it from Morocco. Uh, So uh, check that out uh, sometime. Um, By the way, we are very interactive. I'm very honest. Not only will I post crazy pictures of myself all over the place, but I also will uh, tell you exactly what's going on in all things uh, Leslie Marshall. Uh, So you can hear it here. You can also watch it. You can read it. And you can participate online. Uh, On on Twitter, uh, you can follow me there at Leslie Marshall. On Facebook, LeslieMarshallShow.com or Facebook.com forward slash The Leslie Marshall Show. A lot of people also follow me personally because I didn't send up, set up one of those fan pages originally. We don't have huge, uh, huge, uh, we only have what, between the two, you know, what do they allow, 5,000 or something? So like 10,000 there. But there, we have over 100,000 people in the conversation on Twitter and we certainly hope you'll be a part of that. I'm also on LinkedIn at Leslie Marshall, and I'm also on Instagram at Leslie Marshall Talker. And uh, you can also uh, email me going to our website, uh, lesliemarshallshow.com, the lesliemarshallshow.com. I do respond to my emails. 
and it takes me some time because I respond to my emails. Even though I have a great crew and a great staff, I feel it's important that you are able to talk to me and that you are able to ask uh, me questions. I uh, told you I lived where, where I lived in the United States. I've lived outside the United States. I lived in Pakistan for four months. I adopted a child from there. I have two kids. I have an a 12-year-old to be 13. God, I'm going to be the mother of a 13-year-old teenager son. And I have a daughter who is 11. I'm married, and it will be my 25th wedding anniversary next year, and I have not killed him yet. <laughs> absolutely amazing. So who am I and where do I stand? Well, you're going to have to keep listening. What's the show about? Let me tell you a little bit about it very sh- quickly. We have great guests. We do something called Rip from the Headlines, which you're going to hear after this break in just a moment. And we like to stay with breaking news and talk about issues that we know that you will care about. Uh, And you don't have to be a liberal, a progressive, or a Democrat uh, to care about it. And by the way, I am a feminist, a liberal, a progressive, a Democrat. I say that proudly. And my candidate is whoever the Democratic nominee is, whoever can make Donald Trump a one-term president. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you for listening. We're going to take a break. When we come back, you'll hear that rip from the headlines in a moment. Glad to be a part of the NRM Streamcast and the NRM family. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Once again, glad to be part of the NRM Streamcast. Right now, as I mentioned, let's do a little thing called Ripped. From the headlines. President Donald Trump has commuted the sentence, and not surprising, I heard whispers, many of you did too, of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. His 14-year prison sentence is expected to be commuted to time served. Now, the 63-year-old has been locked up for more than seven years at the Federal Correctional Institution Englewood, south of Denver, Colorado. But the timing of his release from the prison, well, it's not certain, but the process expected to move very quickly, people say. Prior to this presidential action, he was looking at a release date of March 2024. So some people say, what's the big deal? Four years. But some people say, really? Now, like I said, this is not the first time I've heard this. Probably not the first time you've heard it either, because talk of clemency for him has been brewing since the convicted governor lost his final appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court in April 2018. And former Illinois First Lady... Uh, his 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 wife, Patty, uh, she'd been waging a public relations campaign, apparently hoping that President Trump would hear her cries for clemency. Well, obviously he did. In June of 2018, last year, uh, two years ago, the possibility gained traction. President Trump actually mentioned he was considering a move, moving very slowly, the president did, because that was 2018. And uh, Blagojevich and Trump do have history, by the way. He hosted him on the Celebrity Apprentice TV show in 2010. Now, In a separate and now unnecessary procedure, his attorneys filed paperwork at the Department of Justice asking for a sentence commutation. And that official method can take years, usually doesn't end well for applications. In the case of executive clemency by a president, there are no rules or regulations as to how it's carried out or who receives 
mercy from the White House, specifically from Donald Trump. In 2011, the former governor was convicted on 17 counts related to the attempted sale of Barack Obama's U.S. Senate seat and also threatening to withhold state money for a children's hospital unless its CEO coughed up money for his campaign. About a year earlier, the impeached governor's initial criminal trial ended with a jury deadlocked on all but one count of lying to the FBI forcing a retrial. Here's the deal. This is not surprising that somebody that doesn't care about the Constitution, the rule of law within our government and how the government operates, saying, you know what, you can get a get-out-of-jail-free card, former governor, who tried to sell a Senate seat. Because when the rules don't apply to you, you really don't care about other politicians who break the rules, even if they're in prison for doing so. Let's rip another. (laughs) President Trump is stepping on a landmine if he thinks he can bully U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson. Quote, President attacks judge who will sentence Stone. That was the front page the day before Valentine's Day. If he tries to intimidate or otherwise prevail over the upright, stalwart, and dedicated public servant, he may finally encounter something. His avoidance of military experience prevented him from witnessing a face-to-face encounter with a bouncing Betty. Uh, Listen, uh, the, the, the president's recent tweet against the judge, Amy Berman Jackson, she's the judge in Roger Strone's trial, It's got to be called out for what it is, folks. It's inappropriate. It's destructive not only to the role of an impartial judiciary, but also to our constitutional democracy. These attacks must stop. There are 20 other past chairs of the American Bar Association's litigation section uh, that have joined a number of individuals. uh, uh, In addition to who's leading the charge, uh, Mark Koning from Bethesda. Uh, He said, uh, listen, uh, sign this letter. Uh, and sign it in your individual capacity. Here are some that have. Kim Askew, Scott Atlas, Hillary Baston, Bivens, Brad Bryan, Robert Clifford, Ronald J. Cohen, and Lee Cooper, Dennis Dreisko, Lawrence Fox, Ronald Marmer, Barry McNeil, Ronald Olson, and, and a list of others, okay? Um, he talks about this group of people being from states, north, south, east, and west, talks about them being in court every day and that they're defending people's rights and talking about the expectation of their clients and the guarantee from the United States Constitution that a judiciary that is independent and free from political interference, or at least it should be. On February 11th, the president tweets, suggested that Judge Jackson harbored bias and falsely described and linked the judge's handling of prosecutions of his campaign allies and civil claims against former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Like I said, there's just no stopping this guy. Let's rip another. And lastly, Bloomberg is qualified for the next Democratic debate. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Like I said, glad uh, to be joining uh, today live the NRM streamcast. And you may listen to it live or you may choose to listen to it later. That is your choice. We love choice. We also love uh, having this guest on the program today. His name is Ed Chung. Mr. Chung is vice president for criminal justice reform at the Center for American Progress. He co-hosts his own podcast called The Ten. And before working at CAP, he served as senior advisor on criminal justice 
Policing and Civil Rights Issues for the Assistant Attorney General of the Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. DOJ, the Department of Justice. He also held positions in the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, including special counsel to the Assistant Attorney General and federal prosecutor with the criminal section. And he received the John Marshall Award for successfully prosecuting the first case under the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009. And some of our audience may recognize Ed's voice. He has guest hosted our program a number of times in the past. More than a pleasure to have Ed Chung with us, VP for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. Uh, Good afternoon, Ed. Good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Leslie. You know, I I have to say that uh, as a liberal, a Democrat, and a progressive, I am open to the fact that I have some biases, and I definitely have some biases when it comes to the Attorney General, uh, William Barr, and that the lens that I look at this man at uh, makes him seem like a political lapdog for the president, who he seems to have pledged his allegiance to, Donald J. Trump, as opposed to the U.S. Constitution, which is his job to do as the attorney uh, to the American people and to this nation. But on that alone, when more than two thousand, more than two thousand former Department of Justice officials are calling on Attorney General William Barr uh, to resign. That's according to the group Protect uh, Democracy. Quote, political interference in the conduct of a criminal prosecution is an anathema to the department's core mission and to its sacred obligation to ensure equal justice under the law. Uh, and, and they, by the way, have not just been critical of this administration, other administrations in the past as well. Um, let's talk about this conduct of criminal prosecution. You worked in the DOJ. This is a world that you've been in and a world you're still part of, but just in a, a different branch, if you will, or a different side. It, it, is, is, is this completely um, different than anything you have experienced historically in your lifetime when you look at this conduct, improper conduct, with regard to criminal prosecution coming specifically not only out of the DOJ, but even more so out of the Attorney General's office, William Barr? Yeah, I think that those are all great points to raise, especially the fact that you laid out there are so many different things that the, the Department of Justice actually does. So the Department of Justice is defends uh, lawsuits against the United States. They, uh, Where I used to work at the Office of Justice Programs, gives grants and technical assistance to state and local partners. Um, they investigate and, and they uh, help with regulations and legal matters, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the core of what the Justice Department does is it's a law enforcement agency. And as part of that the criminal prosecutions at DOJ are arguably the most important things that it does. That is a thing that throughout, you know, at least modern history, as far as we know, the independence of those prosecutions were treasured, were valued by administrations from across the political spectrum. And so when you ha- that is the reason why you have in a bureaucracy of about 100,000 employees, the overwhelming majority of them are career employees that are not, uh, you know, that don't change with the administration, that get hired at different f- times because of their qualifications. And it's their judgment that controls in these criminal prosecutions to the most part. Now, they get approval from their political heads, but to have that overruled by political leaders is something that rarely, if ever, happens. Uh, And so what you're seeing now is that political thumb being pressed on the scale, especially in cases that involve the investigation to the president himself. And that's where it gets so dangerous. And that's why you have so many people speaking out right now. 
and and rightfully so. I, I mean, when we you know just uh, look at over and over this pattern of behavior, it, it's not again paranoia or political bias, especially when you have uh, this many uh, individual. Um, the uh, nonpartisan nonprofit group said that the attorney general has quote flouted uh, the fundamental pr- uh, principle. Uh, the former DOJ official said it's outrageous uh, the way Barr interfered in the Roger Stone case. For people that are not in this bubble that you and I live in of politics and what's going on in and around the Beltway and the White House, bring people up to speed with the way the Attorney General of the United States specifically interfered in this Roger Stone case. I think most people know, but a lot of people get sound bites or have headlines and don't know all of the inner workings. So the prosecution, as we know, stemmed out of the Mueller investigation, but these were being taken now after Mueller, his special counsel role ended, the uh, the prosecutions continued because they were still in the court system, and they went to various U.S. attorney's offices that were pro- and were prosecuted by career prosecutors. The, the trial of Roger Stone ended in a guilty verdict, and the way that federal sentencing works, it's basically a calculation. It says, here is a base offense level, and it's basically you do arithmetic and said these are some factors that would make that sentence go up or down, and then you present a sentencing memo. That sentencing memo goes up the chain of command at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and for something as uh, as you know, major as this prosecution would go up the chain of command at DOJ, at Maine Justice, before a, a, a court filing takes place. So before the, the prosecutors actually put that sentencing recommendation into, uh, into a court filing and submit it to the court. What happened here was that the court filing went in by the career prosecutors, and it was, a, it was a sentence of seven to nine years for the charges that, uh, that Stone was convicted of. After that, you had President, tweet, the, President Trump tweet out how, in his mind, there was, this was a miscarriage of justice and that you know, this was way above anything else that he's ever seen. And then right after that, you see uh, Attorney General Barr quickly get together with his hand-picked U.S. attorney uh, in D.C., who was his former aide, Tim Shea, and say, we can't have this. This was not what this is not what I wanted. And so another court filing was um, was submitted that basically said the earlier one was not the true position of the Department of Justice. And, you know, I think one thing that, um, you know, people don't really understand is once you have a court filing and for DOJ to come on top of that with something else contradicting the first one in, you know, in criminal prosecutions, that is a that is a big deal. That almost never happens. And again, for the attorney general to do that in this setting after President, Trump, President Trump's tweet, uh, you know, smacks of uh, Trump way, putting his thumb on the scales and bar obeying what Trump wanted to do. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, it, it, the, the, it looks over and over, not just with Roger Stone, that Barr has done the president's bidding. Um, what, what do you think the attorney general, I mean, having worked in the Department of Justice, is saying when he sees colleagues and peers, people he knows, some of which may be friends or individuals he's worked with, um, you not only have that, you have four federal prosecutors who walked when he reduced uh, and recommended a, a reduction in sentence for, uh, for Roger Stone. I mean, isn't there a, a time that you have a wake up call and you say, wait a minute, you know, I'm, you know, everything around me is crumbling. You know, 
it, look, if if you're if you're going to pledge your allegiance to this guy, at the end of the day, most of us care about ourselves. Doesn't Bart care about himself? I mean, this guy's going to be gone. Worst case scenario in four more years. I think that we may, if we're wanting that or expecting that from Barr, uh, it was kind of like Susan Collins saying that, that Trump has learned his lesson from impeachment. Uh, but I do think that you made you make a great point. It's not the the letter signed by the 2000 former DOJ attorneys employees, and I was one of them. I think that's an important statement. It's an important statement for the public. That state that letter was signed by people who worked in all administrations. I was hired during the George W. Bush administration as a career employee, uh, and so forth. But the the fact that four prosecutors withdrew themselves from that case and one resigned from the department altogether, that's about as strong as a statement as you can make as a prosecutor without just fully, you know, I, I can't think of anything that's, that, that is more, uh, a more, uh, stronger statement uh, to make to the court, to make to the country, to make to the administration. And right after that, that's when you saw Bill Barr have the interview with ABC News that, uh, well, he tried to lay out what his explanation was. And so I think it's more uh, that, and not to, again, discredit this letter in any way, because I think that's, you know, something that's important, something that I, that I was uh, glad to participate in. But having four uh, prosecutors withdraw from the case and one resign uh, is is a strong, strong statement. And hopefully from that, there can be something that comes uh, in terms of the way uh, Barr conducts the, his he leaves the, uh, the Department of Justice. I just don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon. Let's take a call going to Decatur, Georgia, on line one. Uh, Reggie joins us. Reggie, question or comment for our guest, Ed? Happy Tuesday to you, yourself, Leslie Marshall, and Leslie Marshall showing your guest. I just have one question for both you guys. What do we do with William Barr? Should we say, or should I say, how do we get rid of him exactly? Ed? Well, I mean, I think that the issue here is whether or not what how the how the legislative branch is going to keep uh, keep the executive branch in check. William Barr, as we know from back way back into the 1990s and before, when he was part of his first term in the Department of Justice, his first time around, he was somebody who advocated his policy of the unitary executive, somebody who didn't want encroachment from the legislative branch at all. And I'm not talking about impeaching Barr or anything like that. That may be some what some people are considering. But at the very least, is there anything that Congress and the Senate can do to have more oversight on, on the Department of Justice? The next oversight hearing that uh, that Barr will be, you know, coming to himself is going to be, I believe, at the end of March. And when was the last time that you ever had Barr come in and testify? You really haven't had any kind of real accountability and oversight, and that's because the executive branch and the Department of Justice has resisted all of those types of things. So is there, what is Congress going to do, and how can Congress exert its powers to make sure that there is legitimate oversight, either through funding, either through laws being passed, either through regulations, whatever it may be, how can you keep the, part, the Department of Justice and especially the political powers at the Department of Justice in check? That's real, the real question. 
Uh, uh, thank you. And Reggie, I hope that answered your question. I feel that it does. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with our guest. Uh, feel free to pick up the phone and join us. 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. I'm Leslie Marshall. Ed Chong, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Podcast is our guest. He also co-hosts the Tent Podcast. We'll be back with him. We'll be back with you. In just a moment, don't go away. In the meantime, be sure to follow Ed at Ed Chung DC. That's E D C H U N G D C. His podcast handle is follow at the tent pod. And the website for the Center for American Progress is AmericanProgress.org. I'm Leslie Marshall back in a moment. We're back. Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress is our guest, Mr. Ed Chung. He also co-hosts the Tent Podcast. Ed, thank you for holding Welcome Back. Uh, talking about officials calling on Attorney General William Barr to resign, more than 2,000. How about people out there just playing devil's advocate, Ed, that would say, look, Speaker Pelosi has asked for him to resign. All these other people have asked for him to resign. Shouldn't there be some type of investigation? I mean, he has agreed uh, with a subpoena. Uh, to uh, appear before congressional committee. He's not shirking that. Uh, should we hear all the information? The reason I say that is because, you know, I have said, and, and you know, peop- I think it went viral last week or something, which is even if we give him the benefit of the doubt, even if he's not the lapdog for the president, the actions and specifically the timing of actions with regard to Roger Stone, you know, making the sentencing reduction recommendation in, in, in the time frame, uh, you know, being so closely aligned with uh, the president's tweets. Um, there are a couple of things here. I mean, Barr isn't helping himself if, if, in fact, there's not the lack of integrity that so many of us suspect. And the president's not helping uh, Barr in, in this regard either. So um, uh, should we press pause with asking for resignation and have an investigation uh, and again or, or not? And how likely is it that he would ever resign, uh, you know, based on this, uh, this, this plea from more than 2,000? Yeah, I think that's the real real key right there. We already saw a Senate that was not willing to uh, hold the president accountable. So, um, you know, is there really a mechanism to hold Barr accountable? But on top of that, I think one of the things to mention is not is that it's not only the 2,000 former uh, employees, uh, DOJ employees, and it's not only the four um, prosecutors who who withdrew from the case. Uh, there was just news reported uh, by USA Today that uh, a, the group of federal judges, the group that really is um, a group for that, that meets together regarding you know judicial uh, pay and how they how they work together and so forth. It's basically an association of federal judges. They called it an emergency meeting. They usually meet in April, and they called it an emergency meeting specifically because of the way that Barr has handled himself during this uh, you know dur- during recent events. And not only that. For Trump also to attack one of the judges, uh, Amy Jackson, who was in charge of the Roger Stone case. Uh, and not only did Trump do that, Trump went after also the grand jury foreperson as well. So he's attacking all aspects of the justice system. So if you have all of those things together, uh, the, the signals, especially from the federal ju- justice or judges group, I think speaks probably the loudest out of all of it. And so even whether or not 
we feel like we are, uh, you know, as a public, unable to necessarily keep somebody in check until maybe the election, um, it, it doesn't it doesn't discount or take away from the fact that there are people, neutral parties, bipartisan, non-ideological groups that are stepping out and saying that this is a really, really serious issue. And it's not just kind of appearances. It is something that is really, uh, you know, taking a hammer to our justice system and, and really taking down the pillars, unfortunately, um, which is something that, you know, our country has been based on uh, for, our, for its entire history. Uh, very well said. I, I, I like that. Very well said. Say that again on your podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, no, I like that very well. Um, when you look at not just this letter, but when you look at four, four, four federal prosecutors uh, walking, has Barr lost the confidence of those within the Department of Justice? And what does that do uh, with regard to the Department of Justice? In other words, do we have a wobbly DOJ uh, because there are so many people that don't have confidence in the captain of the ship? Yeah, I think the biggest signal there is where you as a prosecutor, you as a line prosecutor, are doing everything by the book. And, again, we can disagree whether or not, you know, Roger Stone deserves seven to nine years as a matter of policy. But if that's, if that's what he was convicted of, and if that's what the sentencing guidelines said uh, he should get, and that's what was advocated and then approved it in a court filing, and for it then to have the political leaders, you know, basically go the other way and for what appears to be political reasons uh, turn you know reverse that decision I don't see how you cannot be have your confidence not be shaken by that and let's also remember that neither Barr nor the deputy attorney general the second in charge uh, Rosen neither one of them have actual prosecutorial experience and so that, that's another factor to come into play, not only when observing what the leadership at the Department of Justice is doing, but how much confidence that line attorneys can and should have. Now, I'm not here advocating that way. I, don't, I think that as much as possible, you should try to, as a line prosecutor, you know, be confident in the institution of the Department of Justice. But at the same time, when you see over and over again the leadership doing things that make you question, um, you can't help but really think, you know, is are my decisions going to be overturned? And so that's the really unfortunate thing about it. It's a really good question that you're asking. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I hope you like all of them. Uh, and another <laughs> one I have is, um, how unusual is it to have concern voiced by groups of judges uh, with regard to a, a, a sitting active attorney general who is currently heading up the Justice Department, and in addition to that, to have concerns from both sides of the aisle, because you have you have Bush and other Republican appointees who have voiced uh, their desire for his resignation. Ah, we are out of time. I, I hours always fly by. Ed, we will have you back, and you will hear from Ed as he fills in for me sometimes here on the program. He does an awesome job. He also co-hosts his own The Tent Podcast. Please check that out as well. I'm Leslie Marshall. Ed Chung has been our guest. My apologies, Ed. We'll have to get that uh, part two. That's the cliffhanger. Ed Chung, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. Like I said, he co-hosts The Tent Podcast. Check it out. Go to AmericanProgress.org. Follow at The Tent Pod, and also follow Ed at Ed Chung. DC. I'm Leslie Marshall. We'll be back with you tomorrow.